0: Okay, continuing on with the the doctrines of grace and limited atonement, we're going to be touching a bit this morning on the atonement in church history. How did the church over the ages view the doctrine of atonement? Undoubtedly, many of us, we take what we learn in church from our pastors, from our teachers, um, without thinking much about it. Where did this idea come from? Have we always thought this way? Um, And if we haven't always thought this way, why why did things change? Interestingly, when when you look at church history and you look at historical theology, you see that there are many things that good men of God have struggled with over the centuries. How do we interpret God's word rightly? How do we apply it to our lives, both our spiritual lives and our, our lives as human beings here on planet Earth? How does it impact us? <clears throat> We can see, and if you studied church history, undoubtedly you've seen this, where there's often a development of ideas. These things weren't fully known by the church immediately after Christ's ascension. The apostles taught the gospel of Christ. The men who came after the apostles, known you know, by a very general term as the church fathers or the patristic era of the church, which comes from the word father, the Latin word for father. Um, these are the men that, that really uh, worked hard at, at, at trying to understand what the inspired word says and what they've been taught in the face of what turned out to be many heresies that arose in the church. And that, that's basically where we get our, um, uh, the development of theology is, is done in the face of, of serious error facing uh, the church. So <clears throat> that's why when we see in these different church eras that certain things may be struggled with while others are ignored. And some people are bothered by that. They'll say, well the early church didn't even bother with this concept. Well, it wasn't an issue for them. Maybe at that time the the pressing issue was the trinity. We have to we have to understand the trinity and explain the trinity because there are false teachers that are teaching heresy in the church. We need to address this. So, it was done in that sort of manner. Now, the atonement we look at it from our position in history, and like this is a given, right? Could you imagine um struggling with with the atonement um, it's something that we accept, and maybe we don't think real deeply about it, maybe we do, but if we don't that's okay because the way has been paved, and as long as we 're taught properly um, then we, and we understand what Christ did for us, and, and in what manner he did it, um, then it's pretty much um, you know, something that you don't have to spend a lot of time on. But the church, the early church did. Was the atonement necessary? Well, that's an odd question, isn't it? Why would we think it was not necessary? well there was that was posed by some some people uh, some men in the early church, especially um, in the in the high middle ages uh, when um, medieval scholasticism uh, had taken hold, and there was a a, a a very strong connection between philosophy and theology so An important name in this period is uh, Dun Scotus. You may have heard of him, maybe you haven't. But he was a Scottish um, theologian in the 13th century, and he presented his position that the atonement was not inherently necessary that it was determined by the arbitrary will of God, that this is what God decided to do. But God didn't have to do this, basically, is what he's saying. Um, he, 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 Scott has also struggled with the sufferings of Christ. You know, why did Christ have to suffer? God could have done it another way. Um, God, in, in his estimation, in his thinking, God could have accepted any other means of substitutionary sacrifice, so to speak, the way we look at it. Um, Or he could have redeemed, God could have redeemed without requiring any sacrifice at all. Part of the problem with this is, like I said, this is is a time period where philosophy is weighing very heavily on theology. Um, A big name that undoubtedly you've heard of of this time period is Thomas Aquinas. So Aquinas was kind of assigned by the church in Rome to take the works of Aristotle, which had been discovered in the West, they'd been translated, they'd been lost to the West for a long time, um, they'd been translated into Latin, and the church had the works of Aristotle. And Aquinas was given the task, figure out how this fits in to what we believe. So much of Aquinas' uh, um, scholarship is an explanation of Aristotelian philosophy. So that sort of stuff was going on. And, and, and Scotus, this guy we're talking about now, he was what you call a nominalist. And this was a, a trend of philosophy at that time where basically they, they denied any, um, any abstract objects in contrary to Aristotelian uh, physics and philosophy—they denied the abstract, and objects didn't exist really other than in name. So that's why they're called nominalists. They were in on the, so so was they were kind of like realists, I guess you could say. So you have that position. Not that it was popular, but this was going on in the church. <clears throat> and understand that when we that none of these things we talk about are really uh, um, contained just in a certain age. They may be more prevalent at a certain time, but there's bleed over and what have you um, during these time periods. The second way that the atonement was viewed is that it was hypothetically necessary And this, uh, this view has some big guns behind it. Athanasius. Augustine. Aquinas. Believed the atonement wasn't absolutely necessary. It was just based on divine decree. That God sovereignly determined to forgive. The atonement was necessary because... God sovereignly determined that this is how it would be, that that he would forgive sin on this condition and this condition alone. So where does this idea come from? At the time, these men, I think, were concerned with establishing and arguing for the absolute sovereignty of God. So basically, they're, they're saying that, listen, this is... It's hypothetically necessary because God determined that this is the way it's gonna be. But God is sovereign in all things. He could do it any way he wanted to do it. And you think about that as well, that's, that's difficult for human beings to argue for or against really, isn't it? We have no idea what it means to be completely sovereign over all things. And the idea of a completely sovereign being, of course, we accept that. We, we see that in scripture. God's character is revealed in this way. But really, how does that play out? Because we are nothing like that. We are trying to understand the, the, the complete other. And we have limits when it comes to this. And these men are struggling with these limits. So... I just want to stress that, that they, they had a reason for, for saying this. And if we understand the reason, we can say, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. And you know what? It, it, it's not so bad as I originally thought because they're focused on this one thing. They're focused on God's sovereignty. And why? Because there are reasons at that time in the church for them to focus on it because of heresy, because of false teaching then we have, what would be left? left. It's absolutely necessary. I think this is the one that most of us, including me, are most comfortable with, the one we've been taught, the one we see aligning with our preaching, with our teaching, with our confessional standards. Now, remember I said we can't confine any of these to one certain era because this idea, it's not like we worked through, it's not like the church worked through this. That's what I want you to understand. The fact that the atonement was absolutely necessary was being taught and was argued for in the very early church. So it's not like, well, we started here and we moved up to absolutely, it wasn't necessary, now it's absolutely necessary. There was a, a man, Um, who lived in uh, uh, the second century, church father by the name of Irenaeus, and he taught that the atonement was absolutely necessary. Then in the Middle Ages, it was stressed by another theologian by the name of Anselm. We'll talk a little bit more about Anselm in a bit. He wrote a book about it. Um, uh, In English, the book is um, Why Did God Become Man, basically, Cur Dios Homo in, in the Latin, and in Refor, Reformed theology, which is what we teach, which we preach, which we hold to be the, the 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 proper view of Scripture in general, has a decided preference for this. Now, when we get to the Reformation, and we're not going to get we're not going to get super deep into this, and I'm not going to go into how there was different ideas in the Reformation. That's just going to take us down a uh, A trail that I think uh, doesn't do us any good and and it'll take us too far afield. But um, in this, absolutely necessary, the, the, the men who believed this, who taught this, they grounded this in the justice of God. It's like the atonement is absolutely necessary because God is absolutely just. He is absolutely morally perfect. His, his justice maintains his holiness, so to speak. A, a completely holy, holy, holy God cannot associate with, cannot allow, cannot approve of in any way of sin or a sinner. There must be something that makes that right for him to have a relationship and we've talked about, well, Wednesday night, I think, and about covenant, covenant theology. Reformed theology is covenant theology. The, the, the idea of covenant relationships, the covenant relationship between the Lord and his people. The Lord cannot enter into the covenant relationship we have with him as Christians without an atoning sacrifice, We can't be in relationship with him in that way. So the atonement, these men rightly argue, is the only way which God could pardon sin and at the same time satisfy his justice. So they also say, because there were those who denied the necessity of the atonement, and even now there are those who deny the necessity of the atonement, but to deny it, their argument, which is proper, is... A denial of the punitive justice, that is the the justice that God has that requires punishment for wrongdoing, is one of the inherent perfections of his divine being. It's about God's character. If we look at God's character, then we have to make sure that the rest of our theology fits into who God is. We cannot make our theology fit us Make us happy if it doesn't fit in with who God is. So this is the argument that went on about whether the atonement was necessary. And maybe, you know, maybe I, I hope you find that a little bit interesting. Just the idea that, oh wow, maybe you never thought about the fact that some people had argued that no, it, it wasn't. God, this yes, this is what God did. Um, there are no, there are no Orthodox theologians that argue that there was no atonement. Um, so they all agree there was atonement, but was it necessary? And now we're going to look at another aspect of this. How? How did the atonement happen? I mean, we know, you know, our Savior died on the cross for us and was resurrected, we know that, but how did it get applied to us? And what exactly does it do? This is kind of deep stuff, when you think about it, it's what happens when you spend too much time by yourself. If you're thinking about retiring, (laughs) you're gonna be doing a lot of this. Okay, we, we started last week to speak a little bit about the theories of atonement. And we're going to pick this back up. The theories of atonement. So, the atonement did take place. We believe the atonement was absolutely necessary based on God's character. Besides the fact this is how he chose to do it. You know some of the others. Notice how there's truth in many of in. in I think all of the things I've talked about so far this morning. There's 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 elements of truth. But what our our spiritual forefathers in the church have been trying to do is is capture the whole truth. They got little pieces of it, and I don't know if any of them were ever completely satisfied. These men spent their lives. You know, working on this, thinking on this, discussing this, writing about it, arguing back and forth, and we benefit from that. So, in church history, we had, we have um, different theories of atonement. First off, we'll talk about the satisfaction theory. This was proposed by the guy I mentioned a little bit ago, Anselm of Canterbury. So he was the bishop of Canterbury, but he was from Italy. He was a Benedictine monk. The interesting thing in church history, and it could be a bit of a struggle for us modern Christians, whether we're reformed or just, you know, um, uh, general evangelicals, is we look back in church history and we see these men, these, these great thinkers and theologians, and the Roman Catholic to us. And people struggle with that. And unfortunately, the Church of Rome attempts to claim these men as their own. That no, no, you Protestants don't get them. They, they belong to us. Well, that's simply ludicrous. You know, the, the, the Church was a whole. I mean, the, the Church of Rome Headquarters in Rome and in different places. There was the, the Eastern-Western Church, you know, the, you know that and they split at one point, and then the Protestant Reformation. But these men lived before the Reformation, so it's not fair to uh, be uh, engaging in an anachronism. You know, take our definitions of today and apply it to men who lived in the Middle Ages, that didn't apply. These men didn't have a choice. It's not like, you know what, I, I really think I'm reformed. I'm gonna, I'm gonna seek out a reformed Baptist church. No, they, they, they had what they had. And, and some of them, I mean, they're making, they're making arguments that we accept. So it's like they're, they're very far, I think, from, from most modern day Roman Catholic theologians. Not all of them, you know, Aquinas, be very careful with Aquinas. I don't recommend Aquinas to anybody. Um, Aquinas is, and he's all the rage right now. Um, if you wanna know Aristotelian philosophy and physics, then you can read Aquinas. If you wanna know theology, leave Aquinas alone, is, is my advice to you. Um, I've read him, and uh, I, did, I don't get anything out of it. Uh, other than an understanding how we can explain ancient Greek physics in a medieval way. So anyway, remember, he wrote this This guy Anselm, he wrote that book, um, Cur Dios Homo. He says, sin is such an affront to God that only one who is both God and man can provide a remedy. Yes, indeed, right? It, it must be the God-man. But his focus, he focuses... Uh, in, in a way restricted manner that, 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 that kind of leaves his theory lacking. His example, and I think his example kind of helps us to understand what he's saying. He, he says, well, imagine God as a king. Okay, good, that's a good example. We can imagine that. We use that ourselves frequently. God is a king, and sin is an affront to the majesty of God. God. And God's majesty demands a payment for that. It's not that God is not merciful. It's not that God does not want to forgive. But as a king ruling a kingdom, he must have justice in his kingdom. Okay, there's there's an element of truth in that, right? But later reformers argue he's forgetting completely about the law of God. He's, he's, he's putting it all on the majesty of God and not on justice like we just spoke about. <laughs> so here, this is the Middle Ages. Anselm's problem is that he's delving into this from a philosophical perspective. He is thinking as a philosopher, as many of the Middle Age theologians did. He's, he's reasoning apart from biblical theology. Kind of like what Aquinas does, mostly. So there's that. And we can see there's, there's some elements of truth in it, right? But, there, but something's lacking. Then we have the moral influence theory. And I think I touched on this last week. But I'm going to touch on it again. So everything makes sense. So this is from a guy by the name of, let me put the names here in case you're really a history buff. If you like church history and you've not read much, if you find it interesting and you want some recommendations on church history books to read, see, talk, talk to me. Um, at some time, and I can, I can give you some recommendations. Uh, it's very fascinating, very helpful, I would say, for our understanding of what we believe and what the church has gone through. And really, if you, if you have the time and the inclination to read a little church history, I think it provides a very, a much deeper appreciation of what we have when we see what the church has, has gone through. We just kind of assume that this is, you know, hey, it's church, we got this, right? It's like as a little kid, you remember as a little kid, whatever your parents had, you just figured that's life, that's just what you get, you know, if they had certain material objects, maybe they owned a house or they had a car or something, it's like, that's just life, right? And then you grow up and you become an adult and you have to figure out how am I going to buy a house? I can't even afford a car, how am I going to get to work? And you realize, man, I really appreciate my parents. I mean, how many of you that have kids have had your adult kids come back to you and say, Wow, <laughs> Th- thanks, mom and dad, or, or, or whatever? Same sort of thing. Anyway, so uh, Peter Abelard, moral influence um, theory. He is a medieval French scholastic, there's the scholastics again, theologian. I mean, these guys were just thinkers. They didn't have, they weren't, they didn't, you know, in the evening, you know, you light the, the torches so you can see you're not scrolling on your phone. You know, you've got to find something to do. And these guys are monks, you know, so you're not going to argue with your wife. You're, you're, you're locked up with other men and you're kind of tired of them, so you're, you're sitting at your desk with the candle going, you know, thinking this stuff out. <laughs> so he is stressing the effect that the atonement has on those who believe in it. And this is very popular in modern liberal theology that Jesus is a good moral teacher and he is our example. Well, Christ is our example, isn't he? There's, there's some truth right there. Is he just a good moral teacher? No, he, he is much more than that, isn't, isn't he? But, but when liberal theo- theology um, burst upon the scene in the early 20th century, this was a big deal. This was how a lot of people looked at Jesus Christ, and it continues today. You'll find many people that will argue with you over, you know, was was Jesus the son of God? No, he was a good moral teacher. Well, they say that because they've heard it said. They they have no idea what they're saying, for the most part. But anyway, it comes from this idea in in the Middle Ages. The next one, Next theory is the conqueror. I know I'm not going to spell this right if I don't look at it. The conqueror theory. Again, truths. There's truths in it. This is popular, very popular during, I mentioned earlier, the patristic period. That's after the death of the apostles and it lasts from um, like the end of the first century, we would say, until around the 7th or 8th century. Um, uh, church historians don't exactly agree. Uh, it either lasted to the, the Council of Chalcedon or the Council of Nicaea, Second Council of Nicaea. But anyway, it's a, it's, a, it's a large period in church history. There was a lot of thinking going on, a lot of deep thinkers, a lot of important issues as far as how do we... How do we, uh, what, what do we believe and why? So this stresses Christ's victory over sin, death, and the devil that the atonement accomplished. Now that's very important, isn't it? I mean, the atonement's not the atonement without this, this, this victory. So Christ is the conqueror. And it preserves uh, an important truth, like the moral influence theory, but it's also too limited in view. There's more in the atonement than just that. Now we come to the one that fits the best, I would say, and is in line with our confessional standards. It's what we see in scripture. It's what we preach, what we teach and that is penal substitution. This is not universally accepted in the church, though. You have to understand that, and, and many of you, most of you, understand that. If you're here at the 10 a.m. Sunday school hour, I kind of... No, you know a lot already because you're interested in this stuff, right? Um, and I appreciate you being here. So um, this view is supported by, by numerous biblical authors and was advanced aggressively by our reformers. This was the view that I would say the vast majority of them held It asserts that the atonement primarily involves Jesus' taking the sinner's place. That's the substitution. In bearing the penalty, that's the penal part. He's the one that's being punished for us, for our sin. God's wrath required this punishment. God's wrath requires death for the sinner. And our Lord took that upon himself. We do see various arguments against this in modern uh, theology, though. Um, In modern times, theologians, really, uh, a lot of them, evangelical theologians, and I've talked to to pastors in evangelical churches who are um, dead set against this. I know Pastor Steve and Pastor Mike have also you know, we've discussed it. Pastor uh, Steve has spoken on penal substitution from the pulpit, and he's explained how this, you know, is something that can, that is uh, something people will argue against. So, um, the idea of a of of a loving God is something that all Christians are okay with, right? I mean, the, most Christians are going to say, yes, God is loving. But there are Christians that will deny that God is ever angry, that God is wrathful, that God is, in fact, demanding of justice, that they, they, they like the God who pours out blessings on his people, but not the God who extracts penalties for transgressions. Now, I can't explain how they get around you know, the atonement and and our sin, but there is a bit, there's just an over-focus on God's love and not an understanding. I think, um, as I've heard uh, our men talk about in the communion meditations, you know, very nicely put, um, that uh, God is holy, holy, holy. That is how we should look at God, and everything flows from that holy God of course, is loving. But a holy God is also just, isn't he? And a holy God must have justice. And he has wrath against that which is not holy. So this view of the penal substitution view, um, if if we carefully and positively uh, formulate it, understand it, talk about it, it's an a- absolutely indispensable view, I would say, to what we call the dominical witness. That's the Lord's witness. That's the Lord Jesus. How the Lord Jesus explains things in the Gospels, what he he tells his disciples, how it's recorded. That's his witness. And it matches with this, doesn't we? Think about, you know, what, what Jesus told his disciples, what he had to do, right? And what must take place. It's not like, well, you know, this is what I just decided I'm going to do. No. It's, like, it's not like, oh no, what are they going to do to me? No, it's like, this must take place. That's why, and I, and I love how the King James Version puts it, how he set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. Nothing. Absolutely nothing was going to prevent our Lord from rescuing us from our sin. He was absolutely determined that that would take place. And the idea of a face set like Flint, it's like... This, this is just marvelous when you think about our Lord with the little children coming to him. You know, putting the kids on his lap, being loving towards them. Being loving towards other people, being loved, loving towards the sinners, being loving towards those who are begging because they're blind and they're crippled. And yet, he sets his face like flint to go to Jerusalem to be executed. In this day and age, this is a little bit off track, but man, this is our example We are not hardcore all the time. We don't treat everybody like we're made out of rock. There's times when we need to be strong, when we need to be men, and we need to set our faces like Flint. But there's other times when we need to be tender and loving and hold our family, hold our children, hold our wives and take care of them emotionally. So we have the Lord's witness, and then we have the uh, uh, apostles' witness, right? The the men that were with him during his earthly ministry, they're saying the same thing about penal substitution. Now, if you have a proper view of Christianity, whatever you think about how things should be you, can, you push that aside. That's what we, I think that's one of the, the great things that I see in reformed theology. It's like the word of God is the ultimate authority. Yes, there's things in here that we str- We may struggle with. There are things in here we may not completely understand. If I had a way to do it, I may, maybe I would do it differently, but I, I, I wouldn't do it very good, I'll, I'll tell you that, if I did it differently, but we think, well, you know, what if this was? What if we just accepted this and accepted that, like many churches are doing today, right? That's 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 unloving to tell people that they're sinners, that that they can't do this and can't do that because an ancient ancient book back under the old covenant, which you know has been wiped out, you know, we, we don't have to we don't have to be like that anymore. Well, that's not true, and, and you guys know that. So, um, but. But here's the thing is that that if we take that standpoint that that God's word is true, that it is inerrant and infallible, those are two important words. And, and, and there's always always an, a caveat to that, which is in its original language in the original writings. Because we had we do have to accept that that God has decided that man is going to be very, very much involved in the salvation process, right? That we are going to preach the gospel. We are gonna be witnesses to the gospel. That the, the, the word of God is going to be written and dispersed throughout the world to the four corners in the vernacular, in the language people can understand. If it was in ancient Hebrew, biblical Greek, then only a few would understand it. We'd have to, you'd have to track down Pastor Steve or Brother Doug or, you know, me if I had my computer, I could help you, but um, I'm not going to sight-read any of this stuff. To translate it, right? But that's not how God wanted it done. That's not how he wants it done. He gets it translated. So do we make mis- the translators make mistakes? Do scribes make mistakes? Yes, they do. But the Word of God, in its essence, has been completely preserved. The textual errors that are found, what are called textual variances, there's a lot of them. But you know what most of them are? Most of them are, are irrelevant words. They're, they're conjunctions. Like, this scribe forgot to write in, but then, instead he wrote then. He missed that. Or there's a misspelling. Or there's, and there's, there's some very technical terms about you know when a scribe is copying and he accidentally skips a line. He misses a line. But textual critics find this because they they compare all of these manuscripts go, oh, wait, look. This scribe, he he missed this because we have it in these 782 manuscripts. So we know this one is an error. It's a scribal error. There is no, even, even the harshest, most determined critics who are not Christians, who are critical scholars, who do not accept, that Christ was divine, who do not accept anything in our faith, admit that the truth of the gospel is, I won't say the truth because they, they wouldn't use that term. What is presented as the gospel in our Bibles is accurate. That it's not in any of the manuscripts they have over centuries is the gospel ever different. It's the same. We can trust that. When even our critics admit this, when even the critics will tell you, well, that's what it says. I can't argue that. And they will admit that, you know what, yes, Jesus was a real historical person. The the evidence is there. I've got to admit that. But I don't believe any of it. Okay. (laughs) Well, then, Thus, particular redemption. Okay, let's see. I want to talk about our confession now. What does our confession say about this? Well, you know, the doctrines of grace they run all through our confession, and you know, I'm going to um, I'm going to take about five minutes here. We'll see how far we get, and. Um, we may just have to pick it up again, which I'm okay with that. And it, and the way I look at it, if we're repeating stuff, it just helps sink it in. So, if you take your Trinity uh, Baptist hymnals and turn to page 675 in the back, um, that has uh, I'm, I'm sure most of you know our the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689 is contained. In our hymnal. So on page 675. We want to look at chapter 8. Of Christ the Mediator. Specifically paragraph 5. Of that chapter. And I'm going to read that. So please follow along. And it reads. The Lord Jesus by his perfect obedience. And sacrifice of himself. Which he through the eternal spirit. Once offered up to God. Has fully satisfied the justice. Of God procured re- reconciliation and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the father has given unto him some of the references biblical references that are helpful in this is hebrews 9:14 we talk about fully satisfying the justice of god the author of hebrews writes How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And then Hebrews 10, 14, speaking of our Lord. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Along those same lines, Paul writes to the church in Rome in Romans chapter 3 Verses 25-26, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, remember we talked about propitiation, this is like um, the New Testament word for atonement, to be received by faith. This is how how we're saved, by faith alone, right? One of our solas. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now what do the gospels say about this? Well, well, the apostle John, in his gospel, John chapter seventeen verses one and two, this is we often refer to this as Our Lord's high priestly prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. Back to Hebrews 9.15. Therefore he, the Lord Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Notice the importance of the death that the author of Hebrews speaks of. This is penal substitution. That it is necessary. It's, it's, um, so. What does necessary mean? Necessary means it had to happen. That's the proper understanding. And in the last uh, couple minutes, we can, I, I want to talk real sh- shortly, real quickly on um, what the there's a, there's a, a, a book that's a, like a commentary on our um, confessions called a new exposition of the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. It puts the the confession in a little bit easier to understand words and it offers explanations. It's it's an excellent book. So on the limited atonement, particular redemption, it it says this, the recipients of Christ's accomplishments are those whom the Father gave to Jesus. specific, a particular people. This is yet another reference, of course, to the doctrine of particular atonement. Christ's death was particular in that he died in place of those whom the Father had given to him. Towards the end, that those people the Father had given him would certainly be saved. Not maybe saved, not potentially saved, but absolutely certainly saved. So along those lines, Christ did not die to make salvation possible, but to make it actual and effectual. In this sense, the atonement is limited. That's why we talk about limited atonement. But it is also precise to say that it is particular, because the plan to save is definite and effectual. It it was, so to speak, to speak very loosely, it it was all spelled out in detail who and when would be saved. In the Arminian view, remember we talked about the two different views, the reform view and the Arminian view, which teaches that the atonement is unlimited. It's open-ended. It's only limited by man. Man's unbelief and rejection are what limit God's atonement, according to the Arminian view. And worse yet, God could not save in that view even if he desired. Because in this view, Arminian view, salvation is dependent on man's willingness to be saved. And on human ability. It's all on us. So, if you're witnessing, if I'm preaching... One of the other elders is preaching. It's on us to make sure that we say the right thing in the right way and the right words to convince somebody. That is a heavy burden, and I tell you what: in the evangelical church, I have known many Armenian pastors who have been crushed under that load. They step up to their pulpit and they see maybe a dozen people in their church, and they they think they're failing because it's on them to get people into heaven. Ah, That's a burden no human being can carry, brothers and sisters. I give thanks for the doctrines of grace that I do not struggle under that anymore. The confession clearly teaches the doctrine of particular redemption, but although redemption is particular, there's still a sense of universality in it in that the offer goes out to all people, right? That's the universal aspect. It's not restricted because we don't know who is the object of particular redemption, do we? All we know is we are commanded to take it to all nations. But this is still a genuine and free offer of the gospel, contrary to what the critics of particular atonement may say. Like you can't even preach the gospel because you because it's not open to most people. Well, we don't know that. We make a genuine and free will offer. It's incumbent upon us, those of us that are preaching and teaching especially, that we do that. We don't presuppose that, well, everybody here is or is not saved. No, we preach what the Lord tells us to preach without any restrictions in the proclamation of our message. So with that. I want a couple minutes over. Um, Join me in prayer and we'll break before the 11 a.m. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for this day again, Father. Thank you for um, the hard work that's been done by men that have gone before us. We give thanks for our our reformed forefathers and the doctrines of grace, Father. What a blessing it is to us that you led these men to uh, uncover your truths and present them and preserve them for us. We give thanks for that. Father, I ask for a blessing upon Pastor Steve in his preaching to come on 11 and on Pastor Mike for his, uh, his uh, musical worship. Father, may we join in with, with joy to praise you in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.